of the most problematic spaces for me right now is a family group text. I have opportunities there to be gracious, to dig into the conversation, to hear where people are coming from within my own family who do not see things as I see them. Relatedly, we have an opportunity for dialogue. Now, this is going to be hard to hear, but it's true. People, despite your huge brain and your massive intellect, people disagree with you. People uh, in your life disagree with you. People who are related to you disagree with you. I told a story about, uh, I believe it was the 1992 Eastern Regional Final uh, in the men's NCAA basketball tournament. And it was a game that featured the University of Kentucky versus Duke. And you can fact check all of this. I'm not sure if my year is right or uh, where they were in the tournament. But I remember that it was a great back and forth game between Duke and Kentucky. And I know that my dad is a huge Kentucky fan. And I know that for that single solitary reason, I did not love the University of Kentucky, and I was rooting for Duke. And this is a game where Grant Hill, with 2.1 seconds on the clock, throws a almost a full-court-length pass to Christian Leitner, who's on the foul line, catches it with his back to the, to the rim, fakes right, turns left, spin move, jump shot, hits it at the buzzer, and Duke wins by one point. And I remember running around the house screaming, being jubilant because my dad's team had lost the game. Now that sounds harsh. I don't know why I didn't like University of Kentucky. I've got reasons now, but back then I was 10 or 11 and didn't really have a a firm grasp other than I wanted to root against my dad. Now fast forward. I have two kids of my own and my six-year-old in in spite of me, to spite me perhaps, has become a, a fan of the Yankees and I as an Orioles fan am feeling the brunt of that. In fact, a few months ago, he wrote this little sign that said, Yankees fans only and hung it outside of his bedroom door to prohibit my entering. We we have these relationships within our families where sometimes we root against the sports teams of our family and certainly kids more often than not maybe have different political views than their parents and that makes for difficult conversations. Such diversity in the church, it provides us with an opportunity to listen to a different perspective. And even if we're not convinced by the ideology that's being presented, even if we've looked into it ourselves, we've read the books, we've had the conversations, and we simply just disagree, we still have the opportunity through these conversations to hear their story, to learn about the person that we're talking to as an individual, to break through the the toxicity of group politics, to become a friend to an other, to become a friend with a Yankees fan. To become a friend with a Democrat or a Republican or a Libertarian. But how many of us actually do this? And in fact, how many of us slam the door on opportunities by our snide comments, our sharp memes, our hurtful and exclusive public discourse? Because you develop ideas about people and how they project themselves online, do you not? You have absolutely snoozed 
people for 30 days. You have absolutely probably unfollowed people that are not good for your mental health. How much of their online persona has infiltrated your thoughts so that when you see them in real life, there's a background there. You're flashing back to a, a very polarizing meme that was shared as if that fully embodies them as a person. Again, in these dialogues, I'm not talking about being spineless. I'm not talking about being opinionless. I'm not talking about being unconscious. I'm also not talking about inviting extremists over for dinner. Remember, there are very volatile and dangerous ideologies. These are not necessarily the people that I'm referring to. I'm talking about people in our community, people within our church body that perhaps pulled a different lever than you did on Election Tuesday. In the book study that we have been reading together on Thursday nights, the author Jared Bias writes, I plead with you to learn to love your political enemy. And if your impulse is to think that the greatest form of love is to convince someone to come to your side by whatever means necessary, I would ask you to reconsider. Getting to know people who are not like us is a great step toward loving people with our hands and feet rather than just pretending we love them by having the right opinions. I fear that many of us, especially in this climate, have proven to be incapable of loving people practically, oftentimes because of some piece of information that we have about these individuals. For many Christians, it was inconceivable that someone would vote for President Trump. And for many other Christians, it was inconceivable that someone would vote for now President-elect Biden. And yet both people exist in our community. I'm deeply convinced that, that my vote was good and proper, that it was uh, given according to my conscience. And I imagine that people that didn't vote like me do too. Are we able to look beyond how people voted or what they post? Are we able to be gracious? Are we able to engage in earnest conversation? Are we able to keep our convictions without being a pompous jerk? Or do we immediately write people off, cut people out, and place ourselves on the moral high ground? This is also related, but we have an opportunity now and always to develop our opinions, to learn, to grow, to say, I was wrong. You have not arrived. None of us have. And I'll say that in the, in the weeks after the election, it seems like we've forgotten that. Collectively, we've forgotten where we came from. A lot of the ideas and opinions that I have now, I did not have a, a long time ago. Now this, this, this idea of change and development, this is sort of at the heart of much of what we do at TRP, though the way we usually think of it is in terms of theology. So here's some examples of, of theological growth. I often say that the Josh of 20 years ago would be mildly to greatly concerned about current Josh's salvation. Okay, that, that's an understatement. 18-year-old Josh was very smart. He knew a lot of things, and a lot of things that he knew uh, happened to not be the things that we know now, or, or better, the things that we think we know now. I've come to believe that following Jesus, it demands something from us. I mean, it, it demands a lot from us, but one thing it demands is openness, demands humility, 
It demands our ability to say, I was wrong, and then to turn and go in a different direction because your theology will, by the very definition of it, be one that moves and grows over time. If you are in the same place that you were as an 18-year-old kid, I would say something might be wrong. This part of, of my journey has caused me to hold things with an open hand and to be open to change and also to see everyone as fellow pilgrims on the way. So the person that didn't vote the same way that, that I do, I remember that I was at a different place in my journey in the past as well. And that doesn't mean that I'm expecting that person to end up on the same path that I am, but we're all seemingly, hopefully, doing the best we can with the information that is given to us. I, I know how scary this is for a lot of people. In fact, one of the most common questions that I get from folks, both in our uh, community at TRP and people on the periphery, is some derivation of the following question. If we're all growing and, and learning and, and moving and adapting and whatever, if you say all that's true, Josh, then what can I be certain of? And my honest answer, this is not going to be good for you, but my honest answer is, is nothing. Now, we can trust Jesus, and I do, with every fiber in my being. We we, we live with him as our tethering point. When we follow Jesus, we commit ourselves to being the type of person that he is asking us to be, to living in the way that he is asking us to live, to being about loving God and loving our neighbors. We might find ourselves rethinking other commitments, sometimes political ones, because of Jesus as the tether. If you got into a conversation with me, I would say that, the differences between me, Josh, now and 18-year-old Josh now are because of Jesus in my life and the growth and the movement and the leading of the Holy Spirit has, has led me to, different, to a different place, to different, uh, some different theological commitments. That doesn't mean that my commitment to Jesus has changed, not, not one bit. In fact, I feel more tied to Jesus now than, than I have in the past. What I found in this pursuit, this tethering to Jesus, this trust in Jesus, this radical trust in Jesus that I would say defies reason and logic in, in many ways. What I have found in that pursuit of him is freedom. We also have an opportunity Related to this, we have an opportunity here in light of the election results to trust that God is good, that God is moving, that God is invested in us to some degree. Now, I don't want to make that into God is invested in this election and that God is ordaining certain people to take office. I don't think that's a good reading of Romans 13, nor do I think that's a good reading of our uh, cultural moment. But we do have this idea that God is invested in in us. In Psalm 136, the psalmist provides a litany with each line reminding readers as a refrain for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It begins, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist, after every line, concludes with, For his steadfast love endures forever, and tells the entire story 
of, of ancient Israel flanked by God's faithfulness. This word here for steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed, and it means acts of commitment. It's God's commitment to God's people that are evident at every point in their history. The very core of Israelite belief was the goodness of God, the investment of God, the faithfulness of God, and it's no different for us. Though as thoughtful people who constantly assess the world around us, we sometimes struggle with God's goodness, with God's investment, with God's faithfulness, with God's acts of commitment, because maybe we don't see them. Maybe better, we don't know how to quantify God's faithfulness in the midst of our anxiety-producing world. It's interesting that in the Lament Psalms, the Psalms that uh, feature protests and that have the psalmist kicking and screaming and praying, that they're produced with this in mind, this trust in God's goodness and faithfulness and commitment. In fact, these prayers are motivated by the shared belief that God is, in fact, faithful, that God is, in fact, committed, that God is, in fact, invested and involved and is good. Otherwise, there is no use to kicking and screaming. There's no use to protest. There's no use to petition. However, we reckon our current situation protest and petition is warranted and it's invested with the same belief that God is faithful. And folks on either side of the political divide have an opportunity to trust in the goodness and investment and faithfulness of God. But we we need to go beyond that. Because for many of us, we kind of sit there and we, we place our hope in that and we do nothing. But we shouldn't stop there. We, uh, with trusting in our prayers and in God to exhibit faithfulness, we, we have an opportunity beyond that, regardless of our political affiliation, that we have the opportunity to get to work, to love our neighbor, to stand up against injustice, to recognize God's concern for the poor and the marginalized, to align ourselves with the kingdom of heaven and to bring it to earth. This is not just a call for social justice. This is what the core of the Christian belief is all about, to put the things that we believe into practice in our world. God is not just good and faithful so that you can receive that. God is good and faithful so that you can give that to others. We have an opportunity to work, to love, to invest, to be faithful to the people around us. You see, this is not just a sermon or a talk of of well wishes, of ideas that have no bearing in the real world. This is a call for Christians to pursue the heart of God and for each of us to enact it in our spheres of influence. I don't know how things have been panning out for you over the last few days, but I'm hopeful that you are not losing hope. I'm hopeful that in the midst of this, you are able to have good dialogue, to be gracious to one another, to commit yourselves to trusting in God's goodness and God's presence and God's involvement and investment and in God's commitment. I'm also hopeful that you're getting your hands dirty and that you're getting to work loving the people around you. We have an opportunity in the next week or so as we gather or as we don't around a Thanksgiving table to love our families well, even if... They don't vote like you, even if they don't agree with you. 
Let our love of neighbor, let our love of family be the thing that they look back to, not the witty arguments that we have. Again, this is not a call to stand in the middle. This is not a call to sacrifice our, uh, our commitments and our beliefs and the things that we stand for, our convictions. This is not that call. I don't believe that that is, is an appropriate way to live. But I'm not so sure that we need to cut everyone out of our lives in most cases because what we're called to is some form of reconciliation And if God can be reconciled to us when we are at our worst, perhaps we can be reconciled to one another when we are at our worst yet again. I'm hopeful that we can contemplate these opportunities together, that we can learn and grow, that we can use them as a source of prayer and to see how the Holy Spirit is guiding us in our relationships as we continue to pick up the pieces and figure out where we are going as a country and how we can best help to get us there.